welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, we talk messaging with the team behind Waku from Status. Oscar and Sanaz share with me the history of the Status Project, Whisper and its limitations, Waku and Waku 2, and how this privacy-preserving peer-to-peer messaging protocol for resource-restricted devices incorporates zero-knowledge proofs. But before we start in, I want to let you know about the current Gitcoin CLR matching round. Zero Knowledge has a grant live on the page. So if you're thinking of donating to the show at any time, now would be a great time to do it because your donations actually get matched. I've added the link in the show notes. Hope you'll support the show. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Least Authority. Least Authority has a long history of working with privacy-enhancing technologies, including zero-knowledge proofs. With current projects like the Moon Math Manual, a beginner's guide to ZK-SNARKs, and the soon-to-be-released white paper for ZCAPs, or zero-knowledge access passes, Least Authority is contributing to the advancement of learning and development in the field. The company also carries out security audits, including reviews of circuit and cryptographic code. They are committed to helping teams improve the security of their protocols and products, along with publishing their security research on these topics for a broader community to benefit from. To stay up to date, visit leastauthority.com, sign up for their newsletter, or follow them on Twitter at Least Authority. Also be sure to check out their new Community Matters page on their website to read about how they promote the use of secure systems and privacy-enhancing technologies in various communities. So thank you again, Least Authority. Now here is my interview with Oscar and Sanaz from Status. So this week, I'm catching up with Sanaz and Oscar from Status. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah. So I think you two are the first people that I've had on the show from the Status Project. And so for that reason, I think it's probably a good idea to actually talk a little bit about what Status is and maybe a little bit of the history of this project. Yeah, so Status started off as sort of a mobile app. Uh, with the goal of being a window onto Ethereum. And what that means is essentially it's like kind of a chat, wallet, and that browser in one. And I guess uh, one way of thinking about it is is it's kind of a bit like a WeChat, but for this sort of web-free Ethereum world, where the idea is that you want to be able to sort of um, communicate with people and, and coordinate with them and transact and interact with these dApps and everything else that's sort of provided in this ecosystem. And as part of that, a big a big portion of that is also having it be sort of peer-to-peer, private, uh, secure, and sensor-resistant. So there's a, sort of a pretty big focus on making the sort of chat part of it private and secure and sort of being able to withstand um, various types of censorship attacks and so on. So sort of uh, running on public infrastructure. Would you put it in the category of MetaMask, Brave, or like... Some like you sort of mentioned WeChat, and so maybe more in the chat app world. Like, do, or do you do you see any connection to MetaMask and to Brave? Like, those are also browsers. They're also kind of like interacting with Web three. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think it's it's uh, somewhat similar. I guess what we are trying to do with Status is it's more of a like the, the chat component is a big part of it as well because you might, with MetaMask as well you have a wallet, but with with Status you also have the ability to sort of have that functionality when it comes to chats and group chats and so on. And it's also pushed towards having it being used for communities. And and because of you, if you have sort of a native 
interoperability with all these uh, other types of infrastructure, it, it makes it easier to uh, do certain things and so on. And I should also mention that, so this is also where Stardust started, uh, but then it sort of evolved from there. So back in the day with Ethereum, you had sort of Ethereum for consensus and compute, and then you had Swarm for, for storage and Whisper for messaging. Um, and the initial idea was sort of create an app that exposes this and allows people to to build things and interact with it. But then, since then, we sort of um, started delving sort of deeper in terms of protocol and research and so on, because we realized that the sort of underlying protocols didn't provide everything we needed. And especially when it comes to something like Whisper, because we were essentially the only app that used Whisper in production, and that turned out to have a lot of issues in practice. So we started off by sort of solving them. And uh, yeah, and then we have sort of started in, uh, investing more in the infrastructure layer. And that's also related to products like uh, Nimbus, which is also about sort of the firm uh, light client. So it, being able to run that on a mobile phone, which is uh, non-trivial. Yeah, this this sounds actually, so recently we had uh, Martin from Gnosis on, who also told a similar story. And actually, I know the projects, I'm like Status, as I understood, was like a 2017 launch project. It was kind of, I remember it from, yep. from that era. And that like, the original proposal was somewhat ambitious given the tooling at the time. And therefore what you're saying is you had to kind of go back and build a lot of that infrastructure to actually be able to accomplish these things. Correct, correct. And a big part of it is also having sort of users be uh, stakeholders in this kind of thing and sort of turning the model, this sort of Facebook, Google, WeChat model inside out and which fits very nicely so with the peer-to-peer sort of decentralized landscape that we are living in. Cool. I want to understand sort of a little bit about both of you as well. Like, at what point did you join the project? Maybe Sanaz, if you want to say, like, when did you join Status? It was uh, September 2020. Uh, I had an interview uh, with the VAC team. And so I got the offer and then I joined the team. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and what about you, yeah. Oscar? When when did you join the team? So I joined about uh, four years ago, almost. Um and I started off working on the app, sort of doing closure programming and so on. And then I turned into this sort of head of engineering for a while. And then I sort of started focusing more on the protocol effort, uh, which then turned into VAC as a sort of separate R&D unit, essentially. Very cool. Are you now like heading up VAC? Is that your full-time gig or are you still kind of working overall? Correct, correct. But there's a lot of sort of overlap when it comes to other status projects and so on, because we have, we have the status app and desktop as well, app as well various partnerships. We have the Nimbus app. We have our own Libby2P implementation and so on. So there's a lot of sort of uh, collaboration across those teams. Cool. And Sanaz, what are you working on now? Well, in general, my role is uh, a protocol engineering. I mean, I'm a protocol engineer in the status. And so what I'm working, I'm basically focused on the privacy and security aspect of the product. I mean, the protocol stack uh, and what I'm currently working, I mean, previously I was working on the great limiting nullifiers uh, in a relay protocol to protect the system against, against the spammers. And currently we are working on some sort of consistency model across our store nodes because we are working like in a peer-to-peer environment. We don't really have like a central uh, entity to store the messages that are transmitted in a network. So we kind of rely on some resourceful nodes to uh, store the message history for the other light nodes. And then there was a kind of um, problem or a question that how can we synchronize these store nodes and to kind of provide a view consistency and data availability uh, in a distributed manner. And this is currently the main kind of uh, research field that I'm working on. 
I feel like this episode will be talking at least partially about this concept of messaging. Am I right? I feel yeah. like this is kind yes, of at yes, the heart of the project. <laughs> I mean, not only is status, yeah. I mean, status, as, as I always understood it, it, was like a messaging app, right? That was sort of the, the original thinking around it. But let's let's take a few steps back and go through kind of like the evolution of some of these things. So you mentioned Whisper. Oscar, you mentioned this a little bit earlier on. Let's start there. What exactly is Whisper? Uh, so Whisper is sort of... Um privacy-preserving peer-to-peer messaging protocol, essentially. And uh, it was initially part of sort of this uh, holy trinity with um, Ethereum, Swarm, and Whisper, where Swarm was sort of the messaging part. So you had this computer, and you have the brain, and you have sort of this disk, and then you need some way of communicating. Uh, because you, and not everything needs to be on-chain. So that was the idea. And then it, it was also originally meant to be sort of have this concept of total darkness and be extremely private and so on. Uh, and that's why it was sort of used in the status app because we sort of value privacy and we want people to be able to have that. So that's what it was originally. So conceptually, that's what you just described. It was one of these pillars. Correct. But what was it in practice at the time and what did you need to do to it? <laughs> like, Because it sounds like you needed to evolve it somehow. <laughs> Initially, we took it as sort of granted and, and we didn't really think about it as something to analyze. So like this could be a problem or something. But then we realized quite quickly that it has uh, a bunch of fundamental issues, especially when it comes to running Wisp on a mobile phone. And some of these are, are fundamental when it comes to scalability and, and bandwidth usage, uh, but also other problems. So, so Whisper, and we'll, we'll get into that later, but uh, it's using pr- proof of work for spam protection. And that doesn't really work on mobile phones because you have heterogeneous nodes in the network. So on a mobile phone, it's not very powerful. Um, so if you have to generate some proof of work, that, that drains your battery. because And then an attacker can just spin up. Uh, and, and actually, people did this. They spin up some VPS and just attack the whole network and spam it. So it, it doesn't really work as a spam prevention mechanism. It also had other issues. And some of these were sort of conceptually, there was sort of an idea of where to take them, but they weren't sort of fleshed out in practice. So, so for example, when it comes to historical messages, uh, because on a mobile phone, you're mostly offline. So a big part of it is when you when you come online, you have to be able to fetch historical messages. And you also can't really maintain. So the sort of theoretical platonic ideal of Whisper is that every node is sending, like forwarding messages to all other nodes. Essentially. Okay. Is that like, is that the gossip kind of model? Yeah, but it doesn't have, it doesn't really do routing, uh, okay. right? Which is part of how it got its sort of theoretical privacy guarantees. Uh. But yeah, essentially. Uh, but that means that every node ha- gets all other messages. So unlike sort of other types of gossip uh, protocols where you do some deduplication and maybe you only set to a subset and so on, it's a bit different. So so because we were sort of a status, we were, uh, I think, the only, well, one of the few, if not the only um, products to sort of use Whisper in production, we sort of found out about a lot of these issues. And that led us to do like some tweaks to it and so on to get things like implementing a mail server so we could get sort of historical messages and so on. Also some light connection strategies so you can actually use it from a mobile phone and a lot of these kinds of things. What was phase two of this project? Was Waku, was that the thing that you did right? Like you took Whisper and transformed it? Correct, correct. Uh, so, so what we did is uh, essentially we did some um, scalability studies and we realized quite quickly that it's not going to hold up uh, even for our current sort of uh, user base and uh, you would run into issues very quickly, uh, both when it comes to running on a mobile phone, but also even if you have sort of a better data plan or whatever. So with that in mind, we sort of we, clear, we cleared up the specification and also made sure we in- included all the sort of compromises and all the kind of things that we had to 
get used in the protocol when it comes to light uh, client support and historical messages and also rate limiting because we ended up having to lower proof of work so low that it wasn't useful um, for mobile phones. So we, we essentially did all this, these, these things to make it useful on, on a mobile phone. Uh, and then we made a specification out of it and we sort of analyzed it a bit uh, in terms of being more realistic about the guarantees that it provides and something that can actually be used uh, from a mobile phone. Did you have to throw out the proof of work thing completely? Essentially. Yeah. Okay. So what what actually replaces it then? So so that's the thing. Uh, uh, theoretically, proof of work should work for spam pre- uh, prevention, but it it doesn't in practice because it drains your battery. So we end up low, uh, lowering it to such an amount that it was barely useful at all. So what we did as sort of a stopgap in in the initial version is to have sort of rate limiting, which is not ideal, but it can uh, like deal with sort of uh, script key attacks. So, so it's like a low level of defense, but it's what was needed to actually make it work on a mobile phone. What does that like? Remember, I'm I'm not a computer scientist. So when you say rate limiting instead of proof of work, like what does that actually? That's just the amount of messages possible, or so in terms of script kitty attacks, like what would happen is that someone would spin up a server and send a bunch of messages. But with rate limiting, we could essentially detect that and say, well, one node should not be able to sort of publish this many messages in this short amount of time. But it's also very easy to circumvent. So it's not a very strong guarantee, but it's sort of deal with real world attacks. Yeah. I want to also talk about, because you sort of mentioned that this first initial whisper model had this total darkness. I think that's what you called it, right? It had full privacy in its theoretical sense. As you move away from it, as you started to like do more of the Waku modeling, did you have to, like, did some of the total darkness disappear? Did it become partial darkness? Like what what happened to privacy? So I think the total darkness thing, it's it's not a rigorous concept and i think it became more of a almost like a marketing thing and i i there was a period at status where it became this thing where we have this total darkness and and that's it uh, but it wasn't actually something real or substantiated and i think that's also the case for for whisper uh that there's no sort of rigorous sort of privacy guarantees you actually get from it in, in that sense um so it's more of a theoretical thing it's kind of a local optimum uh and a, more of a thing that doesn't work in practice essentially I see. And this also touches on something called, uh, so there's something called the anonymity trilemma, which is that you can only, from like strong anonymity, uh, high bandwidth and low latency, you got to pick two essentially. Okay. And the problem is that it's it sacrifices so much in bandwidth, especially when it comes to, you get these false positives with the way the bloom filters works and so on. That means it, it explodes in usage and it's not actually usable for any reasonable scale, at least in its uh, initial sort of design. With the rate limiting model, where did that come from? Was that something that you developed or were you like using existing thinking when implementing that? So so what exists in, uh, in V1, that was a very sort of basic rate limiting and essentially like DevOps. Then after that, so uh, with V2, there is, um, first of all, this this peer scoring, peer scoring from Gossip Hub, but then uh, this sort of more novel form of rate limiting that we'll talk more about in detail later that essentially came from a discussion with Barry Whitehat at DevCon a few years ago. And that's the one that's based on Semaphore. And it's this yeah, privacy-preserving rate limiting with knowledge proofs and secret sharing. Very cool. So you made this move from Whisper to Waku. Was there any other features of Waku that we haven't touched on yet that was kind of like novel or new? Cool. So, so after we did the uh, initial sort of fork into Waku v1 and solved the most immediate problems, it was still uh, very small changes that we had made. So for Vacu v2, which is what we started a year ago, we essentially wanted to make it more robust and resilient and so on. So one of those, the major thing is that we moved to libp2p, uh, which enables us to sort of have 
run in browsers and get more transports and all these things. Another big thing that we did we're doing here is also that we are we we moved to sort of instead of using the sort of non-existent routing that existed in in, in Whisper, we are basically on gossip sub instead, which is also what's used for Ethereum two and um, IPFS and other products. Did these replace Whisper, or are these like are those equivalents? Lib P two P gossip sub and Whisper are these all the same thing, or is it more like Whisper's like the meta concept and and you're going to implement versions of these other things inside it? So uh, Whisper is running on was running on sort of on top of uh, WP, and, and that was also the case for Vacu, Vacu, the first version of Vacu, and and then when it comes to Vacu V two, essentially because what we wanted what we want to do with Vacu V two is we want to make it so it works for sort of generalized messaging, so human to human, machine to machine, be sort of yeah peer to peer obviously, also be sort of privacy preserving, but also make sure it's, it's sort of modular by design, because. Different targets have different sort of requirements when it comes to these trade-offs. So, so, so a big part is, is running on, in resource-restricted environments. So that's things like mobile phones and uh, browsers and these types of things. So a big, a big part of Vacu V2 was sort of taking this, this thing apart and, and then reassembling it into smaller modules that sort of allowed people to pick and choose uh, to get their sort of desired mix of privacy and, and being able to run under various restrictions, essentially. Cool. Okay, so you made these changes, but like what kind of security trade-offs or problems came up with this new model that you still had to kind of work around? Well, um, the protocol stack consists of kind of several protocols. And what I'm going to kind of emphasize on is like the relay protocol, which is basically kind of a thin layer on top of the gossip sub, like P2P gossip sub. And the issue is that uh, in this network, every node can publish arbitrary many messages. There is no limit. And so it kind of exposes us to the problem of spamming. I mean, there can be a lot of messages that are published in a short amount of time and can kind of congest the system. And so, I mean, previously in Whisper, we had the proof of work to kind of slow down the messaging rate. Yeah. But in our case, because this proof of work uh, was not efficient, it kind of involves a lot of computational overhead, then we were thinking uh, about an alternative and uh, we kind of uh, brought the idea of Autoland, the rate limiting nullifiers and the semaphore indeed. And the idea is that we're going to limit the number of messages that each publisher can publish in the network, uh, but uh, both in a verifiable manner and also in a way that the anonymity of the sender will be respected because we really care about that aspect. The overall uh, idea is that we're going to use a combination of zero-knowledge proof for kind of to prove the identity of the sender and uh, at the same time to use uh, the secret sharing to kind of enforce users to reveal part of their secret values when they send a message so that if they kind of violate uh, the message rate, they have to disclose or kind of they put themselves at the risk of disclosing their secret key and then being slashed. I mean, I can obviously get to kind of in more details, but this is just the overall idea. Hmm. But I'm curious here, like the going back to what you had said about like replacing some of the underlying stuff with libp2p, Gossip sub is the lib P two P where the rate limiting actually lives, or is that a separate entity? Are those two separate ideas? Those are separate entities. 
I mean, uh, in lib P2P, uh, they're using kind of peer scoring method to uh, protect against the spammers. And it's like uh, each peer monitors uh, all the peers uh, to which it's directly connected and kind of adjust uh, their messaging quota. Let's say uh, if it sees a misbehavior uh, of another peer that is again, directly connected, it may decide to wrote or not to wrote their messages. It's like all based on the past activities. And this is the measure uh, that is kind of implemented in lib P2P, uh, but we are not relying on that part. And this rate limiting nullifier is another technique on top of that. Oh, cool. Does the fact that you're using lib P2P that does have routing and this sort of peer scoring, does that actually undermine privacy? Does that like change the, the privacy model? Like, is anyone able to track that somehow? So yeah, it's a good question. So with the PubSub and GossipSub, which is sort of one of the protocols that exist in 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 LibP2P, that that sort of the really protocol is a thin layer on top of. Uh, it's sort of you, you can have this. It's called like a strict no sign policy, which means that you don't actually see so, so someone sending a message, you don't see a signature from it, and so on. So so in that sense, it doesn't uh, degrade privacy uh, because it gives you that option. And that also relates to something like peer scoring, because uh, you're only scoring peers that are immediately connected to you, but you don't actually know that's where the message is coming from, which is also something that makes something like RLN more useful. Got it. It's also worth pointing out that LibP2P is kind of this, um, it's more like a framework and it has all these, these protocols at different layers. So we, you can think of Vacuv2 essentially like a LibP2P extensions, uh, where there's many small protocols that are being used um, on top of LibP2P. Uh, and that also means that you can more easily plug in things. So you can have different uh, transports so you can run in, in browsers and all kinds of environments. Very cool. And then you mentioned that there's you're also using secret sharing. Where does that live in that stack? Is that within LibP2P? Is that something next to it? Is that, yeah, maybe help me help me place that. It's completely related to the this rate limiting nullifier technique uh, kind of as a whole. Well, there are two things that each uh, publisher needs to prove. Uh, well, as I told you, one is the identity that uh, kind of uh, the, the publisher belongs to a group and has kind of enough credentials to publish message in the system. And the other thing is that because we wanted this uh, kind of spam protection to be uh, economic incentive, the users that want to send a message in the network, they kind of lock some fund in a smart contract. And then we want to kind of uh, force them to reveal a part of their secret value, but completely kind of it's a, it's a random share of their secret value. The rate right now is like one message, let's say per second, okay? And if the publisher tries to send more than one message per second, it has to reveal two shares of its secret. And then having two shares of its secret will kind of enable us to reconstruct the entire secret. This is a secret sharing part. And when we reconstruct the secret, then we can, let's say, anyone who can reconstruct the secret, I mean, by give, by having two shares of that, uh, the person can go to the contract, slash this spammer, the guy who has violated the rate, and then withdraw the money. And the secret sharing part, um, kind of this has to also be done in a verifiable manner. So we need to also kind of prove that the sender has included a correct share in its message. And uh, it's indeed, I, what I can say is that this entire zero knowledge proof circuit will consist of this identity, uh, the membership, as well as the correct secret share construction. 
Very cool. I actually, I want to dig into the ZK proof really soon, but I have one more, <laughs> at least one more question on what you just described, the locked funds. Who's doing that? Is that the node operators? Is that the those who are passing messages? Or is that actually the original kind of message senders from the start? Uh, it's, the, it's the message sender. We have a notion of group and the group kind of uh, state is stored uh, in a smart contract. And every node who wants to be part of this network to publish messages, it has to first register to that smart contract, lock some fun in the contract. And then after that point, it is able to kind of uh, send messages and also provide valid proof of membership because he, her public is already published on the contract. Got it. So I just, I used probably the wrong term. I just said node, but maybe what is the name of the agent that's actually doing the message passing? What do you call that? Well, it's it's distributed. It's peer to peer. I mean, it's like you have a network of uh, nodes. All of them are connected. And then uh, let's say if you want to send a message to another peer, uh, you, you send it to the entire network and the recipient okay. will get it. I mean, ultimately. So I was right in saying the word node. That is actually the like in-between agents that you're sending it to. This is probably a really dumb question, but like, are these like Ethereum nodes, like full nodes, or are they? Is there like an extra level of nodes that just live in the status network? Uh, so, so these nodes are are uh, separate. I mean, it's um, it's essentially uh, vacuum nodes. But obviously, a node like you can run uh, if you want to run with Nimbus, for example, you can run Ethereum and a vacuum node at the same time. Got it. Okay. And, and I guess also, so what we're trying to build vacuum uh, vacuum is we're trying to we have this concept of like adaptive nodes. With ideas that you don't just have like sort of full notes and light notes, but it's more of a continuum based on sort of capabilities. Oh. And the reason for this is because instead of having this thing where you have Infura and then a lot of, and then AWS and then people just connecting through that, people who run infrastructure should be able to con- sort of contribute what they what they can. Which is also a big part of how you see with like Ethereum designs like Ethereum, where Ethereum two, where you should be able to run on commodity hardware. And the same thing is, is true here, where you might have sort of a dedicated hardware, or you might just have a laptop, uh, and that's sort of sometimes offline. And it also touches on some of the consistency things we were talking about before, where you should be able to contribute to a network with just your laptop. Yeah, or your mobile phone. Your mobile phone, exactly. And and maybe it's different if you are on a limited data plan or 5G, like like with battery and so on. So, so trying to accommodate for that uh, as well. It's interesting as well to compare sort of this type of uh, spam prevention mechanism with more sort of traditional uh, methods. Uh, because in most traditional, we kind of take it for, for granted when we're talking about um, most popular messengers where you use a phone number to register, uh, or you have some email address, or whatever. And usually that's a kind of private piece of information that's very easy to link to other actions. Part of the reason why that's used is also because it makes it it's costly to get the new uh, cell phone number. So if you just have a cell phone number that you can identify, connect to all actions, uh, it's very easy to sort of say, well, this person is spamming and then cut them off. So this, this sort of presents a problem when it comes to open peer-to-peer networks because you need some mechanism to replace that and make it sort of costly while at the same time sort of maintaining privacy. Got it. So let's dig into this ZKP and how it lives and what it looks like and what it exactly does. Sanaz, I know you just mentioned it. it's sort of the circuit itself holds the ZK proof ID. Yeah. You mentioned it held other kind of elements of this. Let's let's go through it. Let's Let's understand the snark and what it's doing exactly in this. We're using this uh, RNA repository that gives us like the circuit for the zero knowledge proof and the proof generation and the verification functionality. 
Indeed, what we are using is that we, we pass in the secret key of the user. And by we, I mean I as the user. I pass my secret key to the circuit. I also feed in the epoch that I'm going to send the message for. And the, the kind of the proof generation unit will give me the proof that will prove that uh, I am the member of the group. And also uh, it also creates like uh, the secret share of my secret key and uh, the proof that the proof that uh, this uh, secret construction is done correctly. It's, it's a very high level idea. I, I might not be completely precise about that. And then I can use that proof, attach it to my message and then send it over to the network. And then everyone else can use this verify function to verify whether my proof is generated correctly. And then um, either kind of roast my message or kind of drop it because the, uh, the proof is invalid. And in the case that I attempt, uh, I mean, as an spammer, if I wanna try to send more than one message per epoch, uh, and if my messages are different, and uh, the, the, the routing peers uh, will catch this misbehavior and then they can kind of extract uh, the secret key of me as a spammer and then they can go to the contract and withdraw the money and then kind of slash me and uh, kind of uh, drop my public key from the estate of the group. Cool. So I feel like I heard just before something about like a user limit or a, a limit on the number there was like some number that was given as like a top limit. And I'm curious about like, what is that exactly? What is this limit? And did the did the older version already also have that limit? I mean, right now I don't have uh, anything in mind that can kind of pose any limit on the number of users. Of course, when we kind of consider a larger group, then we end up with a larger size Merkle tree and the larger size Merkle tree means that we will, we will end up having more constraints in our circuit. And then it, this will increase the proof time. We might have limitations on that side, but uh, right now, uh, I mean, we are considering less than two to the power of 32. And uh, as far as I know, the proof time considering uh, this size of group is something like a half a second to the best of my knowledge. So of course we can consider less and smaller groups and then we can optimize the running time. I mean, the proof generation, there would be so, such trade-off in, in that uh, respect. But uh, even with 2 to the power of 32, I think it's going to accommodate around half a billion users. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> we already have half a second proof generation with half a billion users, which is, I, I think it's good enough. But yeah, we are definitely working on it to optimize, consider smaller size groups. I mean, in order to kind of lower the number of constraints in our circuit. What are the other kind of like trade-offs or like... I'm just curious if there's anything else that like came up as you moved towards the ZK concept. Like, is there anything else that you're now kind of like needing to fix for in other parts of the construction? Well, uh, not exactly related to the zero knowledge proof part, but I mean, in order to prove uh, the membership in, in a zero knowledge manner, we need to uh, hold this stage of the group as a Merkle tree. It was originally outsourced, was outsourced to the smart contract, but then there was a lot of uh, kind of uh, gas consumption when we want, you want to hold it in a smart contract for every insertion, any, any update on the group has to be kind of handled through the contract and it was not like very efficient. And then we decided to move the storage of a smart contract to the users. I mean, it's completely kind of uh, distributed. I mean, the Merkle tree is not distributed, but each user will hold it locally and then keep like uh, itself updated with the latest state of the group. And the state of the group right now is just like a, 
uh, a set of uh, public keys that are stored on the contract and every uh, every node has to listen to the contract and see if there is any update and then they can reflect that update on their own uh, Merkle tree. There is a kind of a concern regarding to the size of Merkle tree that has to be stored locally. And, and you're thinking towards some like a hybrid structure where we will kind of designate a set of full nodes, some of them that are more resourceful to hold the Merkle tree and then synchronize their the state uh, kind of collaboratively. And there will be some set of light nodes that will fetch the latest state from those full nodes just in order to kind of uh, account for the, the resource restricted devices. And this was kind of one of the major uh, kind of uh, problems that we encountered. Uh, I mean, throughout this whole kind of uh, rate limiting nullifier and enabling this zero knowledge proof part. I would add another thing to that as well. I think the, it's kind of a, a novel mechanism and I think the, the use experience is also fairly important. Uh, so we will, We'll see sort of exactly what the best way of exposing that is. And to some extent, it's also like an app concern because essentially what you're creating is you're creating this, this garden, right? Where you sort of pay your entrance fee and then after that you can message at, at a certain rate and be like a nice citizen, which is great, but it's maybe not necessarily what all uh, applications need because it also means you need to have funds to get started and, and all these types of things. So there might mm. be some hybrids there, which sort of plays into the idea of modularity as well, where... Uh, because it's it's sort of gossip and pops up based, you have these topics, so you come in and you have sort of some topics that are slightly more secure, and then it becomes a kind of application level concern in terms of how much they, they want this stronger form of uh, spam protection and so on. Yeah, I want to hear a little bit about the, the actual snark that you're using and like how maybe the trusted setup plays into the way that you're thinking about building the system. Uh, well, uh, we're using Growth 16. And so uh, as far as I know, the library that's, that the Ireland repository is using is Bellman. And for the trusted setup, it, it's gonna go through like this MPC ceremony. I mean, considering that uh, one of the participants is honest, then we can kind of rely on the, the output of the parameters that are generated uh, as a result of that MPC. Are you gonna be using the kind of perpetual powers of Tau that Weijay has put together or are you gonna be running your own? Correct. So it's because it's based on Semaphore, and that's sort of part of the perpetual powers of Tau. So it's a way using that. So we are able to sort of piggyback on on that community effort. Oh, amazing! Do you even have to do a, your own phase two, or can you just use the Semaphore phase two? There's phase two as well, but I think um, that trusted setup, if I recall correctly, has sort of uh, not as strong security requirements necessarily. Like I think the the worst case scenario when I talked to Barry last time about it is that you would be able to spam the system. Um, that, that's sort of the worst case scenario. And in that case, you could you could sort of upgrade the system and so on. Uh, so it's uh. slightly different from something like private transactions where the consequences are much worse. Going back to status as the product, right? This messaging product that would be sending things around. What, we're, what we've been talking about is like this lower level, like deep in the weeds kind of underlying protocol that would allow for some of these messages to be sent around. Does Waku version two, does that solve for everything it needed? Like, do you see this as something that could be incorporated into the initial product, the overall status product, like to work? Or is it like, I'm, I'm kind of curious if this solves everything or if it's like just dealing with a piece. Uh, definitely. So, so um, right now, Waku v1 is, is what's running in the status app and, and Waku v2 is essentially 
overall, like we have this component we talked about uh, with RLN, but a lot of the other components are, are ready and we are sort of in the process of integrating it into the status app. And we also have this uh, collaboration with uh, Wallet Connect. So Wallet Connect 2 will be running on, on VAC V2. So uh, a sort of subset of things are, are in essentially production ready. Um, cool. There's still sort of, we're doing some stability tweaks and, and so on, and but we're dogfooding it as well. So right now we're using sort of command line chat client and, and have it sort of bridged to Discord. So so it's essentially sort of a minimal subset is production ready, and then we'll add more and more modules. So our airline is sort of one to sort of increase the guarantees and so on. I guess going back to your question on uh, how it fits into status. So this is like one part of it when it comes to chat protocol, but then there's also other things on top of it. Uh, so we have this um, signal-based double ratchet protocol for perfect forward secrecy and, and these types of things, which is kind of a conversational security layer. And that's something that that already exists. Uh, and it's not, it's not a focus, research focus right now, because we're focusing on, on VACV2 and data consistency and spam and so on. But that's something that you could potentially look at uh, down the line when it comes to getting scalable group chat and so on. Then there's a lot of other things that, that maybe the VAC team isn't uh, focused on completely, which are more sort of application level. And these are things like this uh, effort around um, community management and access management and so on, because a lot of these topics, they are sort of free-for-all. So you can just send send stuff on it and then it appears in the status app. Mm. And that means that moderation is difficult. And here we sort of distinguish spam from moderation, where spam is sort of the network level thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, moderation is actually if people send like, scam messages and these type of things. So there's an effort that's sort of been on, going on within the status core team to create these moderation features and these types of things so you can create uh, your own little community and uh, these types of things. Very cool. Um, just I want to check a little acronym because you mentioned it a few times, RLN. What does that actually stand for, RLN? Rate Limiting Nullifier. Okay, Rate Limiting Nullifier. And that is the ZK-based spam pr- protection that yeah. you, that's sort of your short form for that. Yes, cool. yes. At this state, how private is it? You know, we had talked a bit earlier in the episode about the 100% darkness. How far along towards that has has this all of these innovations actually like brought us? Like, do you feel like, is is it a private system? Or do you see, like, would you, would you say there's still some trade-offs we have to keep in mind? So I would start by saying like, like the, the notion of like total darkness is not a well-defined thing. It's not something anyone in sort of the privacy research community was sort of use. Um, so I guess it's like a, it's, a, it's very much a process. Uh, and I think the biggest thing is it really that it's pseudonymous. So having sort of an open network where you don't actually tie it to any real-world identifiers is huge, I think, because that allows that gives people the tools to to stay private in lots of ways. Another big aspect of this is sort of what your exact requirements are. Because you have to sacrifice something in order to get sort of metadata protection guarantees, and usually in the form of something like bandwidth. So if you're running a full node, uh, there's this notion called K-anonymity, where essentially if you're sharing the same topic and you're not signing the message or something like that, then you're essentially hiding in, in that crowd. So your anonymity set is, is uh, messages on that topic. Uh, obviously, this depends on your, your threat model and so on. And, and I just want to, yeah, when it comes to being transparent around uh, privacy guarantees and so on, that's, that's sort of a, was also a big thing. We didn't want to just be a, a, a sort of marketing claim where we sort of said, oh, it's private or whatever. We want to be really rigorous about it. And I think to get the absolute strongest kind of privacy guarantees when it comes to, uh, I don't know, NSA levels, uh, adversaries, these types of things, you would probably need something more like a mixnet, uh, things like a NIM product are, are working on so on. And that's something we explored in the beginning, but we also want to be sort of realistic and have it something that you can deploy today and also have it work in a sort of pub-sub uh, setting to sort of have this topic concept because that's, that's very vital in many applications such as a status app. 
And I also want to mention that a big part of, of a private anonymity is also having like a large set of users. So enabling a sort of the protocol to be used uh, in many environments is also sort of uh, increasing privacy in that regard. But then it's, it's also very much a process and we're still sort of researching more details and how to improve things when it comes to unlinkability and, and these sort of things. In our uh, kind of messaging system, we are trying to avoid to have any personally identifiable information in the messages. Let's say one of the things that Oscar also mentioned was that we have like the um, no sign policy. I mean, none of the messages should be signed and the signature shouldn't be visible to the other parties because, uh, I mean, there are ways to sign it. It's not like that we completely avoid it, but there is a thing that on the Waku messages, we shouldn't put any signature that is visible to the routing peers. And the reason for that is that, I mean, signature, uh, because it is tied to a verification key, it's it somehow allows to kind of link all the messages that are issued by the same sender, by the same signer. So it kind of breaks the anonymity because it provides linkability across like uh, all the messages that are published by the same uh, publisher. So we, we are really concerned about this level of privacy. And as I told you, removing personally identifiable information. And so let's say this no, uh, no sign policy is one way to achieve that. And also, I believe that using this gossip sub protocol where you send and like, I should say pop pops up a kind of paradigm when you send a message and uh, it will reach to uh, kind of the entire network, all the people that are subscribed to the topic, it provides a good level of anonymity because literally no one knows who is communicating with whom. You just send a message and anyone is listening and someone can pick it and look at the message and someone can drop it. And you really don't know who does that or who does drop the message. So it also provides a good level of anonymity. We are also working on uh, kind of the anonymity and darkness in other layer of uh, layers of our protocol. Let's say in the store protocol, and also we have a filter protocol. Let's say filter protocol is for further knows that they don't want to really engage in the relaying, but at the same time uh, they want to get a subset of messages in the system. And and in between there is a full node, there is a light node. The light node queries that that full node to filter the, the incoming messages and sends it back to the light node. And so this kind of this request to the filter node exposes or reveals um, some some information about the querier. And so we need to take care of that part. But the fact is that we are very much explicit and transparent on our specs about what kind of security issues will happen if you, let's say, you use this protocol. We are completely kind of transparent about that. And of course, we are working on uh, on the measures to provide anonymity using, let's say, obvious transfer or stuff like this. Uh, these are kind of the future research directions. But uh, yes, I mean, we, we are certainly and seriously concerned about users' anonymity in, in our protocol stack. To add to that, uh, I think a lot of, like we come initially from sort of having this uh, to be able to run on a mobile phone. And I think a lot of theoretical constructs and so on, they are they are great in theory and so on, but there's no such thing as a freelance. And when you, when you actually want to run it in a mobile or a browser or something, you need to have this, kind of way to get access to the full network and and uh, to actually design that from the from the ground up and and we think of it as kind of a service network where you have these nodes that provide various services and then the idea is that you don't want it to be like a single point of failure single gateway but it's it's the kind of thing where you can choose multiple entry points and then have them sort of help you and then if you have stronger requirements then you can run sort of your own node completely uh, another thing also is that um, we try to make it easy for application developers because a lot of application developers, they don't know too much about, they have some some cool app and they want to do, do some cool stuff, but they don't know much about privacy or metadata protection or 
peer-to-peer or these types of things. So we also try to guide them in the right direction and have recommendations for how to use the protocol. So for example, we by default share things on a single topic because that increases sort of the anonymity set. Um, and which also plays into this role of modularity, but at the same time providing same defaults. Cool. Well, listen, I want to say thank you to both of you for coming on the show and explore, like kind of going through a bit of the history of status, exploring the Waku version one, version two, and like, yeah, kind of bringing us up to date with where where we're at. And I, I actually think you make a good point about the like the the sort of transparency about privacy guarantees. I like the fact that there's something modular here or something optional. Um, but also, I think that's something that every everyone working in privacy always kind of has to come up against, which is there are trade-offs for sure. And there's different, also there's privacy at like different places and you may have to make trade-offs in one place in order to achieve the more important privacy for the end user, the one that they care about. But yeah, thanks so much for explaining all of this to me. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it was great. And I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre. Thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening.